0: Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strafford, Michael Palmer, Brandon Jones along with you again. And today we have a very special guest. That's Scott Jacek, and he is the co-founder of Inside Higher Ed, the editor over there. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you give our listeners a little bit of your background to to kick off the conversation here today?
1: Sure. Well, I've been writing about higher education pretty much my entire career, Uh, first at the Chronicle of Higher Education, then since 2005 at Inside Higher Ed, and we're proud to be reaching uh, millions of people with news about higher education, about admissions, about learning and teaching. Um, and we just love serving this uh, this part of the world because we think higher education is so important.
2: That's awesome. Uh, so, Scott uh, Mike Palmer here. Uh, great to have you on the show. Um, I know you're a bit of a trend spotter yourself. So, so we here on trending in education, uh, it's it's in our name uh, for Pete's sake. Uh, so we're looking at trends, uh, we're trying to understand uh, as Wayne Gretzky famously said, uh, where the puck is going. Uh, you're a bit of a trend spotter yourself. So uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, uh, I, I believe you, you put a list together of 15 uh, trends in higher ed. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, your background, uh, you know, trying to get a sense of where, where trends are going in higher education?
1: Sure so I guess in terms of my background I'm I'm uh, somewhat odd in that I'm just talking to people at colleges every day and reading their stuff and and looking for what's going on I think the key to spotting trends in higher education from my perspective is that most of those who are trying to do so are really trying to spot trends in the Ivy League and the Ivy and, you know, and throw in Stanford or MIT or whoever, they are in every way atypical of most of higher education, which isn't to say they don't do, that there aren't some issues that overlap. But I think when you look at, to really think about higher education trends, you have to get out of the elites. And, um, and, and they just aren't what's where the action is. And so that I think is, is why a lot of people are misled about higher education trends because they're just looking at those institutions.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, what what are some of the more interesting trends uh, for folks who maybe are too focused on the Ivy League? What are what are some of the trends that uh, you know we have? Pl- we love lists, and sure. uh, and you gave us you <laughs> gave us fifteen. is a lot to go through. Sure. But like thinking about uh, maybe some surprising um, uh, trends or trends that are. Uh, not really Ivy League focused, but more rest of the world focused. Are there any that jump to mind?
1: So the first is that, you know, one of the big misconceptions people get because of the Ivy League focus is they think it's impossible to get into college. In fact, the big issue in higher education now is that for much of the country, colleges are worried about getting enough students, not the other way around. And it's about to get much uh, more challenging for colleges. There's a fascinating book by Nathan Graw about the demographics and demand in higher education. He's an economist at Carleton. And there have been predictions for some time that enrollments would go down in most of higher education uh, in the coming years. But what he looked at is what happened in 2008. 2008, the economy tanked and uh, people started having fewer children. And so the current projections got much tougher. And what he writes about is that most colleges uh, by the mid 2020s are potentially gonna be looking at declines of of 20 or more percent in their pool of potential students. Mm -hmm. This is potentially totally reshapes supply and demand in higher education. Mm -hmm. And it really forces colleges to think about who they are, how they're gonna succeed, um, and how they're gonna be different from other colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you throw in geography here, and where is this gonna be? Most tough will be for colleges in the Northeast and the Midwest, which are losing population. Mm-hmm. And historically, a lot of people have thought of higher ed as almost centered in New England. I'm not sure if that was really ever true, but it's less and less true. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a lot of colleges there that are going to be losing students. now. Um, Mount Ida College in Massachusetts recently closed and really set off a lot of people were very concerned. Wheelock College just merged into Boston University. And I think what these show is you're going to see more colleges having to rethink their economic model, particularly non famous private colleges. Um, And uh, this creates actually opportunities for students. And that they may have a better shot at going to more places, mm-hmm. but it really forces colleges to define who they are. Why should people pay? Why should people go where, where they are? So that's a big trend. Now, the flip side of that is in California. Um, in a place like California, where you've got the population booming, their big challenge is not enough slots. Mm-hmm. And California has this great tradition of public higher education where in theory, the very top go to University of California, then the next lot go to the Cal State system, and then you have a great community college system, but they've flat out run out of space. They haven't kept up with the growth in population. So all of a sudden, it's much harder than ever to get into University of California campus. Now, this has been true for some years for Berkeley and UCLA. Now it's true pretty much across the board. And some of the Cal States are becoming very difficult to get into. Mm-hmm. So in California, you know, so th- if you're if you're in New England, if you're a student in New England who wants to study in New England, this makes it easier for you. In California, it's much tougher.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, hi, it's Scott. Uh, Brandon Jones. Good to see you again. Um, you know, you mentioned talking to colleges. Like you, you talk to people in higher ed every day. That's what you do, and uh, so I think you have a, a really great and and unique in some ways perspective. Uh, Are colleges thinking, colleges and universities thinking 15 years out or or 12 years out or however long it is until some of that demographic bubble from 2008 starts to flow through? Are are they already anticipating the trends that you were just talking about?
1: I think some of them are. I actually worry that many aren't. The thing that worries me is I see a lot of colleges that just think if we come up with one gimmick, we'll get more applicants and everything will be fine. And I think the demographic shifts are such that that's not going to work. On the other hand, uh, I don't want to name this person, but I met recently with the president of a well-known liberal arts college where everyone lives on campus, and this president said that the institution was asking itself, what if 20 years from now there are no more residential colleges? And and I thought it was very striking that they were actually sitting down and thinking about that. I don't think there will be no more residential, that residential colleges will all go away. Mm -hmm. But I certainly think if you look at where the growth in higher education is going to be, it is going to be in the non-residential colleges. And so that poses a challenge if your niche has been residential. I actually think the colleges that will succeed, are colleges that know what they're about, mm-hmm. and, and 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 uh, you know, two years ago, I actually gave back-to-back speeches at Swanee and then at Southern New Hampshire University, and you couldn't think of two more different <laughs> institutions. Swanee is a very traditional liberal arts college uh, in what looks like an 18th century British village on a hill on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Southern New Hampshire is now mostly online competency-based, but I actually think Both of those institutions are going to be fine Mm -hmm. because they know what they are, and they can message to prospective students, this is what we're about. I worry much more about the colleges that are, uh, for lack of a better word, a little generic. Mm -hmm. The college that says, our faculty members love our students, and we have a pretty campus, and in the fall, the leaves turn. Um, I don't think that's going to cut it anymore.
3: Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds like a great place uh, of higher education <laughs> to uh, to go. Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting also thinking about um, either the generic schools or the schools who know that they want to be something different, but that the cost to them, and not and not just you know outlay of cash, but the sort of cultural change cost, is going to be pretty great. You know, if you if you are something today and you want to be something tomorrow. Uh, That can be a hard transition, and I imagine those hard transitions are ahead for for a number of institutions of higher ed.
1: For for a lot, they are, and I guess one of the things I always look at when when I hear institutional leaders talk about that, um, I'm always curious, what is their plan to get there? Mm -hmm. Um, It's great to say, we want to be X, but what does that mean? And so, for instance, these days we see a lot of places that were traditionally liberal arts colleges, trying to become a little more professionally oriented and um and that can be a good thing or not but i think there's some real tough questions um just throwing on a a pharmacy school or a first responders bachelor's program well um are you known in those areas does it do do those areas relate to your other academic strengths Um, but uh and, and so that's the thing how do you get from a to b it costs a lot of money and also, what are you giving up and are you possibly giving up what is in fact your strength and identity?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting uh, just thinking about the, the analogies to, uh, to organizations, which is something we do talk about, um, the, those kinds of topics pretty uh, regularly in addition to higher ed and K-12. Um, it almost, and, and the other, the other uh, related area that I think about is uh, the notion of growth mindset, uh, which, uh, you know, Carol Dweck Uh, you know, famously uh, coined the term, but um, like it's almost, if I'm hearing you right, it's almost as though you're saying uh, universities need to get organized about their mission and their values and their culture so that they can adapt to the changing world that we're in. Uh, But there also is a little bit of openness then to, to engaging differently. Like, you know, I imagine the challenge is organization, sorry, universities that uh, that historically have had a brand and they've had a sort of business model, uh, again, to get a little bit uh, organizational about it. uh, That worked in the traditional mode. Lots of students need to go to uh, residential universities like those, those are those, those uh, universities, some of whom I think may have a mission maybe they, they've sort of gotten organized about their vision for the say the next 10 to 15 years and uh, you know, they're beginning to adapt. Um, but it sounds like you're, you're almost arguing or, or cautioning the organizations who maybe haven't done that type of work yet that the time is now, like you oh, the, the, really...
1: the time is now and it's tough work. So for instance, many institutions look at the trends about residential uh, higher education and say, oh, well, we'll get a lot of uh, adult students Well, that's in theory a great idea. There are a lot of non-traditional age students who need more education, but is your institution designed for the adult student? Uh, Is your website that invites people to apply, does it just show a group of happy 18 year olds going to a fraternity party? Mm -hmm. Well, that's not gonna appeal to a 35 year old uh, single parent. Um, Does your career center focus on helping somebody who's just gone through retraining, as opposed to somebody who's gone through first training. Mm -hmm. So even if some of the academic programs might be the same in some areas for a a traditional age and non-traditional age student, everything else may not. Um, are you um, offering courses on nights and weekends? Are you um, teaching online or teaching hybrid programs? Do you have uh, ample free parking? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these issues, uh, so it's not just a matter of saying, oh hey, we welcome adult students. Um, it, it's are you really looking at what it takes? To give you another sort of big trend issue that relates, uh, transfer. Mm-hmm. You know, transfer, I'd say, is, is becoming, in some parts of the country, the norm for higher education. If you look at universities in Florida and California and elsewhere, the fast growing population state, states, starting at a community college is the norm, mm-hmm. even if you're graduating from a four year top university. So that means you have to think about everything differently. What does general education look like if somebody's only on your uh, bachelor's awarding campus for two years. What mm-hmm. does residence life look like? What does academic advising look like? A lot of colleges and universities were designed for, under the theory that they enroll 18 year olds and they stay for four years. Mm-hmm. Well, this would be another issue where, yes, that is still true at the elites, but it's really not true at most other places.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. we had um, Nancy Sanchez, who heads up the Kaplan Education Foundation, come on and talk about uh, her book, which she publishes here, your two thousand and eighteen Guide to College Transfer, where she talked about this as you know trying to educate um, both schools and family students on uh, on this trend, but this that is a growing trend, I think one that we 'll continue to uh, to see
1: and and we 're also seeing it even in the northeast where we haven't ha- it hasn 't been the norm as much, and I think it 's also important to ask sort of educationally why this is so important. the traditional model of enrolling assumes that colleges can identify all the talent they need by the time somebody is 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And while there's a lot of talent that is identifiable at 17, um, there's a lot of talent that's not necessarily clear till later. And so if we don't, as a society, find ways to bring in that talent, um, we'll be denying a lot of opportunity in the United States. And this is also particularly important for those who are concerned about diversity in American higher education and in society. If you look at community college transfers, they are on average much more diverse than those who enroll at a four-year institution Mm -hmm. uh, as traditional age freshmen. So this is a very important population that um, doesn't get enough attention. Mm -hmm. But as I said, with adult students, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, we accept transfers it's do you accept their credit? You know, a lot of the biggest frustration of transfer students is they think they've got two years of credit, they transfer and their new institution tells them actually you only have one year of credit. Well, the model of transfer, particularly to make it more affordable for students, is what people call the two plus two model well when that becomes the two plus three and a half model Mm -hmm. it loses a lot of its allure
2: sure yeah and uh just building on on uh brandon's point uh one of the interesting uh topics that came up talking about the transfer population with uh nancy was that uh that diversity you're speaking of is multi-dimensional uh so like the the students who are more likely to transfer are typically more, they're more likely to be older. They're more likely to to maybe have 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 a kid at home. They they may be veterans. They might be uh, DACA recipients. And we talked about that uh, the diversity, not not exclusively on gender or 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 racial uh, uh, diversity, which I'm sure is also uh, you know highly represented in this population. It is interesting to get into a broader understanding of diversity and how. Uh, many of the many universities, getting back to my mission-related point before, who are are fully embracing diversity uh, from a cultural standpoint, they're actually valuing the the difference of that transfer population and treating that as 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 a, a genuine value to the more traditional uh, population that that they've served. Does that make sense?
1: absolutely that that does make sense i would also say there's some ways where again and we're talking here on average it's not true for everyone many transfer students like first generation students generally at all kinds of institutions uh, tend to have a practical orientation they are wanting to help their families and themselves advance economically so they are very focused on what are career opportunities Um, and they don't have a lot of money. So they're also focused on issues like how much am I gonna have to borrow? Am I gonna be able to repay? Again, these are true of some who enroll as freshmen as a teen, but they are particularly uh, important issues for those who uh, are transfer students.
3: Yeah, I think just staying on the diversity conversation for a second and maybe taking it into a a slightly different direction. it uh I, I think it's really important and I'm I'm glad to see that that there is a model that I don't know we've quite figured out, but a model to get to in, in, embrace more diversity on, on campuses across North America. It it does seem like the sort of race relations piece of this we haven't quite figured out and you know, figuring it out, I'm making air quotes here, is uh it's a big deal, and uh, I, I don't I don't want to just glibly oversimplify, but it does seem, just looking at the the headlines, including some of yours, Scott, that. We, we live in a time where there's still a lot of work to do. So is that, has that been, uh, I think that was one of your 15 trends.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is, a, there is a ton of work to do. I mean, race relations on campus are not good uh, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, when, when uh, students are now returning, I can tell you that we'll have the potential to write stories pretty much every week about racist incidents that take place. The reason I think it may get even worse is we're seeing increased legal and political fights over affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Generally, when we enter a period of legal and political debate over affirmative action, race relations get worse. Be, you know, One, people don't understand how affirmative action works, but it raises all kinds of questions that lead people to say more offensive things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also in a very uh, corrosive political environment where the, you know, I think people look at their leaders. And um, when it is the, you know, frankly when the president of the United States calls people of certain groups, certain things, um, it is not teaching college students how to interact civilly and respectfully.
2: Yeah, interestingly, uh, I imagine some programs are doing it better though, right? So what I, what i'd be curious about is like uh your take for, as an uh, someone with like an editorial uh responsibility um to what extent should w- we be reporting on stories that are very similar that are part of a broader trend versus looking for almost um maybe underreported on more uh positive cases that that maybe can start to affect uh, maybe maybe a broader change. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the latter. I, I think I'd, be, I'd love to hear if, if you have any so, examples of good use cases.
1: So here's the thing that really depresses me. There are in fact lots of very thoughtful programs on college campuses designed to bring groups together. Um, and yeah, when I report on the racial incidents, there seems to be no relationship to whether there is a good programming on campus or not. Mm-hmm. I fear that a lot of good programming is preaching to the choir's mm-hmm. um, now. But I'll give an example of something that 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 we've written about and that we'll be writing about this year that I think is quite notable, uh, and that is at Duke University. Historically, um, in the last 15 years or so, uh, freshmen have picked their own roommates. Uh, colleges have Facebook pages or social media accounts. And so freshmen find who they want to live with and big shocker, they uh, pick people just like themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what Duke is saying, and this really goes against the grain of what most institutions do, Duke is returning to random roommate selection. Mm -hmm. Now students can still say if they're a early person or not, or if they have some, some issue like that. But um, there will be more uh, black people rooming with white people, more gay people rooming with straight people, and so forth, at Duke this year, uh, at least as freshmen, than any recent previous year as a result. Um, And that struck me as a really interesting development, because they're saying left to their own devices, students don't form meaningful relationships with people who are different from themselves. And this relates to an important high school trend in that high schools in the last 10 years have become more segregated than they were uh, the prior years. And really in many cases, as segregated as they were before so-called desegregation. And so more college students are arriving on campuses without meaningful relationships that they ever had with somebody of a different race or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So they're learning. Uh, you know, hopefully you want to think that they're trying to do it right, but the reality is they don't have these skills. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to see what happens at Duke, um, and the reaction has been interesting. Some minority students have said that what Duke is doing is forcing them to be the teachers, mm-hmm. and and they're not, they're mixed views of people of all backgrounds there, but they're saying, hey, why, why should I have to educate um, On the other hand, uh, I have to give Duke credit, they are trying something here, and many other campuses are not.
3: Yeah, I I like, Mike, your question about the optimism. I guess just even listening to that, Scott, it feels um, like we should be, there's some macro optimism that if we're going to figure this out, that higher ed is a good place for it. When you think not just residential colleges, but also those, Mm -hmm. you know, people are sort of thrust into living and learning environments with people who are different than them. Um, and, and when you think about back, you know, I'll, just speaking personally, my own uh, experience, how formative the college time was, like f- if you can get in those formative moments mm-hmm. with some, you know, things that represent, I think, modern values, that that should be a time, that should be a place, you know, that that is a sort of uh, a crucible in which a lot of these, important life relationships for individuals and then sort of societal relationships uh, more broadly speaking can be formed so I, I hope that there are good stories coming out of uh, inside higher ed under your byline because we i hope we are things like with duke and others that we are trying some things that won't be perfect in their implementation i'm sure and and may introduce new kinds of problems but Hopefully, we'll be uh, you know trying to make progress in this space.
1: A- ab- absolutely, and and you know, and, and in terms of higher ed societal role, as you said, um, again the other another traditional place where that happened was the military mm-hmm. um, in the era of the draft, which you know people had all sorts of problems with the draft for various reasons. But when, to the extent the draft applied to all groups equally, which wasn't always true, you were bringing together people from different backgrounds. Uh, today, there's a strong uh, tendency that, that the people who go into the military come from more lower income backgrounds. And so you don't have the historic um, melting pot that you had in American society. And that really does leave it to higher education and is why these efforts are, are so important, I think.
2: It's interesting. Uh, your your des- description of some of the, the, the insularity uh, that exists out there uh, does seem to dovetail in a maybe concerning way with uh, another thing you mentioned just in passing, which is social media and sort of the, the, the way the world has changed for, uh, for Generation Z. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and like how sure. the, whether those trends relate or just generally what you're seeing around um, like the, the, the different dynamics of growing up as a young adult heading into higher ed in the 21st century?
1: So social media plays a big role in the lives of most students these days in the lives of many adults as well. Um, and so it starts off typically with their being warned in high school, you know, make sure you clean up your various social media accounts. But um, I, I think that actually may miss the main point. Um, are, I would ask students, are you saying things in a public sphere that you should be? that you um are you communicating with a range of people or just your friends are you using social media to denigrate and mock or are you using it to exchange ideas and challenge yourselves uh the thing i worry that social media reinforces the segregated nature of our society and that people like to post into echo chambers and then maybe periodically blast those who don't share their views or backgrounds And and social media can create a very false impression, I think, among some students that everyone agrees with them because that's who they're connected to, when in fact, that's not the case. I also think social media, frankly, makes it more difficult for a student to recover from a mistake. Um, Look, everyone makes mistakes of all kinds. Um, Social media makes it a much more public thing if the mistake involves uh, saying something bad about somebody else, the harm can spread instantly. Um, and and I think a lot of students historically, particularly traditional age students, still have this false idea about the you know the bubble that they live in. Mm-hmm. And even if they're active on social media, they sort of think they're in their own world. But the reality is they're not.
3: Yeah. It's it's more public and more permanent. There's been. sort of moving out from the higher ed space, but in sports there's been a number of cases recently of, of tweets sent from, you know, teen, from one's teenage years, Mm -hmm. resurfacing seven, eight years later. And, you know, we talked, um, uh, we've talked about digital citizenship here as a topic we've come back to on this pod a number of times. Uh, I think that's something that a student needs to, uh, people, not just students, this is adults are susceptible to do, but, uh, you know that that bubble is uh, is a mirage, and the things you say, you're not just saying today, but you are saying them forever, uh, because of the permanence of of social media. So it's uh, it's, it's interesting, and um, you know, I, I think uh, I I wonder maybe a question to you, Scott, is how 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 do you see institutions of higher ed tackling this this uh, concept of digital citizenship? How are they teaching their students? How are they talking about it?
1: so some of them are talking about it and trying to discuss it some we've heard about a few places that have required their students to go on uh social media fasts mm-hmm. and to stay <laughs> off social for you know a day or even one place a week um and now in that case i i suspect there was a lot of cheating because unless you have a true big brother uh situation um you can't monitor students But I think that's interesting. The other things that we've written about a few places doing, actually, I think are more on the positive side, challenging students to start a conversation with somebody they don't know on campus that day. Um, And, you know, if you go on any campus these days, you see a ton of students walking around with their devices, not interacting with anyone and um and i think that's uh and so to me i mean i don't think you can um the train has left the station we are in a digital era and so i don't think you can hope to undo it but i don't think there's anything wrong with being an active active on twitter but also having the ability to actually say hello and introduce yourself to somebody you don't know
2: yeah and 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 also maybe uh build time into your uh your, your teaching time to, to develop lesson plans around digital citizenship. Uh, we talked to um, a philosophy professor uh, at UNC Charlotte who, who's now spending a, the majority of his time leading like civic engagement uh, programming for their, their university. Um, I imagine that takes a little extra work and it probably takes more support at the, at the university level but there is an element of um, almost leaning into the complexity as an educator. Um, does that does that sound right? I mean, we we've talked individually uh, to a couple of folks who are kind of championing uh, this level of developing uh, citizens who understand their digital presence as part of who they are. Is that something you're familiar with? You, you, I, I
1: mean, I see that? some I see some faculty members doing it, and I definitely see why they're doing it. It's tricky. Many faculty members will say, you know, I have to teach whatever their subject matter is and um, and they feel, you know, pressed for time to cover the content, but many times it may not be An either or uh, depending on the subject matter to be able to encourage people to take different positions to, um, you know, to to think outside of the way they think Um, I will go way back to when I was in college and I will date myself by saying I took a seminar in uh, US policy in Central America and I was assigned by my professor to to write a speech for Gene Kirkpatrick. Mm. And my professor knew that I did not agree with Gene Kirkpatrick, who was then a prominent voice in the Reagan administration, but I had to craft an argument along those lines. And that was very useful. And I do see people doing things like that, because it's if you just say, "How do you feel about this?" Um, you don 't necessarily stop to think about, "Well, what are the other sides? How could I make an argument for the other side?" See some interest in renewed interest in things like debate and model United Nations uh, as a result again, mm-hmm. forcing people to not just you know explain their opinion but to have to go into others' views
3: one of the um uh, things we've been talking about, I think it's a theme throughout all this conversation is, is change and the changing landscape in higher ed. Uh, a thing I wanted to touch on before we, we wrap here, um, and I, the, the list of 15, as, as Mike said, yeah. uh, no way could we have made that through, through that all in a, in a pod, but uh, folks should check it out because it's, I, I think all of them are interesting. Um, but you talked about, uh, we've been talking about the digital world, we've about Model UN and, and sort of the world world. Uh, the, the changes in international students, I think, and, and in the draw of the U.S. as a destination for international learners, um, I think that, that, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the sort of model implications of student, pop, student and demographic population. Uh, I think there's probably some implications of that, too. So interested in what you've seen and, and what, you, uh, what you think those implications might be
1: sure so i think we're in a very challenging period for american higher education um after 2008's economic downturn many colleges as they were coming up with their economic strategy uh included a big part of it was getting more international students and around that time we saw the growth of the middle and upper class in places like china and india so colleges could recruit that mythical full pay student from outside the United States and they came in large numbers. Last year we saw a 7% decline in the number of new international students. Now the elites didn't feel it because even if you are feeling very skeptical about the United States, um, you'll go to MIT or Berkeley but it's the other places and and people in American higher education and American education need to remember we have competition um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada are, have great universities and they are heavily recruiting. So I think you will see more questions. And if you look at say Canada, it's a good comparison. They have great universities of all kinds. They cost a little less than American universities do, but Canada as a country by and large is embracing the idea of diversity right now. Um, and so you have a uh, acceptance level that many fears lacking in the United States. Now, the reality is many campuses are as committed to international students as they ever were, but the headlines about things that President Trump is saying have a very real impact. Now, the other thing that happened recently and is after I did my list, just shows how volatile this can be. Two weeks ago, Saudi Arabia got in a fight with Canada and so Saudi Arabia is pulling all of its students out of Canada, uh, basically overnight. Wow. And um, and they were full-pay students, so this is hurting the Canadian universities. But the ability of something in the world to shake things up um, is real. Many people don't realize it, but before the Shah fell in Iran, Iran was the third top supplier of international students to the United States. Mm. And then boom, they went away. Now this matters on part for financial reasons because the students from these countries are helping to pay our bills. It also matters for educational reasons. Um, these students do add perspectives that are lacking and particularly in the sciences, um, You know, there's some sort of protectionists who say, oh, we're giving away our science slots. The reality is there aren't enough American students studying STEM. Mm-hmm. Um, many of our labs at universities would not run, but for international students. So any loss here has real implications for uh, American higher education broadly, and particularly STEM programs.
2: Yeah, and uh, and by by extension frequently that'll also impact our entrepreneurial, uh, opportunities. A lot of, uh, you know, first generation, uh, STEM undergrads, uh, actually form, uh, form technology startups, you know, like if you look at the list of, uh, you know, Google and, uh, and many of these other, uh, Silicon Valley sort of luminaries, they they got their start this way. Um, is that, uh, you know, I, I know we're coming up on time, but, um, how much is higher ed thinking about um, the, the employment side of the equation and uh, and really more like the, the needs uh, for, for our workforce uh, in the future?
1: I think higher ed's thinking about it a lot. Um, you see programs created in hot fields all the time. Um, and there's a lot of pressure on colleges from prospective students and especially from parents who want to know if we're gonna pay X um, you know, if, to many parents, the worst case scenario is their son or daughter moves back in with them. And so it's, it's perfectly all right and legitimate for them to ask and for colleges to be looking. But one of the trends that I worry about is a devaluing of the humanities based on false information. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people who assume if you are an English or history major, you will end up working at Starbucks. Well, that is actually not true. And in fact, there's a great uh, study that we wrote about from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences showing that humanities graduates are as employed as others, are not, I mean, what people don't understand, people think, oh, if you're an English major, you're gonna be a poet. No, you're as likely to be a manager or a, uh, somebody who works at Kaplan or somebody who works at Inside Higher Ed. Um, I'm a history major, I'm not a historian. Um, and so the reality is people go on to a range of careers Humanities graduates do not earn as much as engineering grads, but asked do you have enough money to support yourselves and be happy? The answer is yes. Asked are you leading fulfilling lives? They're more likely than other majors to say yes. So, um, while I think it's great for colleges to focus on careers and understand why parents and students do, I think there's a lot of false bashing of the liberal arts that doesn't necessarily serve us well. And it's important to remember, that's also a career perspective. Every survey of employers that ask them, what do they want? They want students who can communicate well, who have good critical thinking skills, who understand the world, who can work as part of teams. Mm-hmm. These aren't things that are unique to any one major.
0: As a history major and English minor myself, Scott, I definitely appreciate that. Uh, Scott Jessick of Inside Higher Ed, one of the co-founders and editor therein. Can you let everybody know where is best to find your work and the work of Inside Higher Ed?
1: At insidehighered.com, and it's free, and I hope everyone will come browse.
0: Absolutely. We talked about those 15 topics. Uh, Didn't get to all of them. Plenty still to talk about there. Brandon, any final thoughts before we go?
3: I was just gonna say, um, uh, Scott, I was looking through some of your recent articles and you have to page like three or four pages back just to get the last week. I mean, you are, <laughs> you are uh, prolific. So uh, I encourage people to check it out. It's, good. it's really good stuff. It's on the topics we've been talking about today and lots, lots more obviously. Um, and, and thanks so much. I, I, uh, I very much have enjoyed uh, the conversation and really appreciate you uh, joining us.
1: It's been a pleasure.
3: And that's going to do it for
0: this episode of Trending Education. Great stuff from Mike and Brandon, as always. And a special thanks to founder and editor of Inside Higher Ed, Scott Jacek. Uh, You can find him uh, where he said. So be sure to follow uh, their work over there and uh, insidehighered.com as well. With that said, thanks so much for listening. As always, share us with a friend, with a colleague, with a relative. Let them know about Trending Education on Twitter, at Trending Ed or Trending Ed on Facebook. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, tune in, uh, Google podcasting, leave a comment, leave a rating. And as I said, share us with a friend. Until next time, you've been listening to Trending in Education.